0: You're listening to the CXMH podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr. I'm one of your hosts and I am joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing this week?
2: Hey, Robert, I am doing better this week than last week. Um, still here, but (laughs)
1: still here, still
2: here, but, um, but I feel like we're starting to find a teeny bit of a rhythm in our home. So a little bit, but what about you? How are y'all doing?
1: Um, I I mean, probably about the same, I guess, like you were saying, you know, kind of finding a little bit of rhythm, kind of getting our, our legs underneath us a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, obviously, from like a, a a macro standpoint, there's still tons of uncertainty and oh, yeah. uh, worries and fears about kind of what this looks like and um, what what the next chunk of time looks like. And you know, from like a large scale thing, but I think in terms of like the day to day functioning, feel feel a little more stable than last week uh, when we recorded, or even the week before that. You know, yeah. Um, so kind of adjusting, adjusting there. Um, yeah. So yeah.
2: Yeah, but that's glad good. To be
1: here, chatting with you.
2: Yeah, me too. So yeah, yeah.
1: Has there been anything in the last week that you have found surprising that has been helpful or anything like that? Mm. Like kind of things that you've like learned about yourself or the way you function or your family or like things like that that you you know weren't expecting necessarily.
2: Oh, that's a good question. Yes, I'll, it will be the short answer. Um, (laughs) I, I feel like, I feel like I, um, am starting to trade in some of my needs, uh, around like hurrying and hustling and getting a lot done for some other ways of being and things that I can be doing with my time. And I'm okay with it. Like, I don't know how to explain that in a way that makes sense, but. I think what I'm finding is that as a family, you know, it's not just me learning how to slow down, but I'm also realizing this layer around my family, around us slowing down together, that I'm really appreciating, at least right now in this moment, in the midst of a lot of other things that, you know, a lot of other feelings, a lot of other things that are happening, fears that we have, et cetera, I'm at least appreciating that as a family, we're able to shift together into the slower pace. So, so yeah, I think that's been kind of helpful. Oh, and writing. The other thing, like the writing has been really helpful too. So this last week, actually Baylor reached out to me and asked me to write a piece on faith and mental health and like why we need Mm -hmm. to be considering our spiritual and our mental health in this season. Um, in light of the fact that, you know, what we're so concerned about our physical health and safety And, um, and that actually felt really good. And it was helpful for me to find this little outlet or for me to be given this little outlet by Baylor to, to write about some of this. So, so actually that was really helpful too.
1: Yeah. And you did a great job. I'll say I read it. Oh, thank you. Um, And I thought it was great. Yeah. So we'll toss that in the show notes for sure so that people can, can read that and, and, you know. Get your thoughts on stuff.
2: Well, I appreciate that. Thank you, friend. What about you? Yeah. What did? What have you found to be helpful in this last week?
1: As as tends to happen on this, I t- kind of toss that question at you, uh, and then uh-huh. thought, oh no, I need to. Have Here an we go. For,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: uh, which <laughs> you'd think both of us would learn by now. Um,
2: <laughs> I know. I've got my question.
1: <laughs> Sorry, go I ahead. Know, when you were talking about slowing down together, I think that caught my kind of my ear right like that that's such an interesting idea because I do think over the past like year or whatever I have uh, incorporated some things that I found helpful for me like going on like short little walks in between sessions things like that right just like mm-hmm. um, getting moving things like that but in the past little bit obviously the past week or, or two or so um, there's been more opportunities to do that like together with Brooke or with Brooke and Gray right like um, which has been interesting to uh, that's not something that I had thought about in terms of like slowing down together right like when you know and so I think that's that's interesting because those have been really nice times of getting out and going on walks even if we're not talking about much or or if we are Mm -hmm. or things like that but like incorporating those aspects but together I think is is interesting so I I hadn't thought about it in that way but you know you you mentioned it and put some language Mm -hmm. to it and I think I think that's an interesting idea. I think that's going to stick with me for the rest of the day to kind of think through and, and process.
2: Oh, well, good.
1: Yeah. Um, it feels a little strange if I'm, if I'm being honest about it to uh, kind of roll into an interview that we did kind of pre I know. all of this Yep. and one that the topic isn't directly related. That being said, mm. uh, I, you know, I was scrolling through my podcast app the other day and I, I listened to a lot of mental health things, a lot of like current event things. And mm-hmm. there was like six in a row that all were something related to coronavirus, like quarantine, like stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Which I totally understand from like a people want to put out like relevant and helpful content. And we certainly feel that. that
2: Yes, that that's important. I not say pressure, yeah. but like
1: the desire to do that as well. Right. But I also, when I was scrolling through, I thought, man, I, I want something, not this at the moment. Like I want to be able to focus on something and feel a little back to like normal in some sense, right? And so yeah. I was thinking kind of driving where, where I am today, not that I'm like out and about, don't worry, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm in an office that nobody else is in, but I was thinking maybe it's kind of okay that that we go into something that is non-specific to quarantining and all of yeah. that, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's- helpful in some sense for people to say like, okay, can we just listen to something that we would have listened to anyway, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
1: So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange, it feels a little weird, but also maybe I'm like, maybe it's helpful. I don't know.
2: No. Well, but I still think this episode is relevant, even if it's not directly the topic of coronavirus and staying right. at home. I still think this content is going to be helpful for all of us in this season too. And as we're navigating Um, And caring for, you know, our mental health and our spiritual health and the systems that are in place. Um, So anyways, I'm going to stop there. Why don't you tell our listeners about this week's episode?
1: Yeah. So we got the chance to talk with David Finnegan-Hosey. He's someone I've interacted with some for a while. And we talk largely about his second book. We, we touched some on his backstory that was the subject of his first book, but then um, his more recent book is called Grace is a Pre-existing Condition, Faith, Systems, and Mental Health Care. Um, and it's, I mean, I thought it was fascinating, both the book and the conversation in terms mm-hmm. of how the way that we talk about things and understand them from a theological standpoint overlap onto the way that we understand like healthcare systems and things like that, and vice versa. Right. And so,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, I loved this chat. And I loved when he started getting into some social work language. I really, yeah, <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. really excited. Um, So that was fun. So, anyways, yeah. yeah, I thought I really enjoyed this one.
1: Well, with all that being said, uh, we hope that y'all are listeners, that you're, you're, hanging in there you're doing all right maybe Mm. hopefully getting your legs underneath you a little bit in terms of your day-to-day you know hopefully you know that if you're worried and anxious and stressed and all that that's not just you that's kind of all of us and and we're here with you in that um, kind of navigating this unprecedented thing all together but we love you and hopefully the next little chunk you can sit back and listen to this and enjoy it and and think about something else for a little bit but yeah I don't know I felt like we should reiterate that, that we're thankful for y'all and yeah. you know, we get it. We're here with you. and Yep. Um,
2: That's right. But, yeah, Yep. We do love you and we're grateful for your willingness to share your time with us, especially in the midst of this. So we've gotten a couple of pictures. I'll do a little shout out to, hi, Elizabeth. Um, we got a picture from her recently listening to us on a walk. And so, You know, if you are listening to us and you want to snap a picture that you're listening to us and say hi, please feel free to do that. Send it our way. Um, But we're grateful for y'all.
1: Yeah. Well, here is our interview with David Finnegan-Hosey. All
2: right. Enjoy y'all.
1: All right. Today, we are so excited to be joined by David Finnegan-Hosey. He currently serves as the college chaplain and director of campus ministries at Barton College in Wilson, North Carolina. Having previously worked with campus ministries at a number of other universities, he has an MDiv and all sorts of other things like a mental health first aid certification, things like that. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit of his backstory. But David, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. Thanks. It's great to be with you remotely here
2: yeah. yeah yeah
1: i should say that you are also an author right of two books now the first one being christ on the psych ward and the second one that just came out grace is a Preexisting condition mm. faith systems and mental health care so we're going to talk a lot about the new one but i did want to give you a chance you know right up top for our listeners who didn't read your first book or aren't familiar with your backstory and why you're passionate about these areas, if you'd be willing to give us a little kind of summary of kind of your backstory. Mm -hmm. That was a terrible way of asking, but uh, (laughs) you know
0: what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Uh, Yeah. So the the backstory and what the first book arose out of, I guess, uh, was uh, in 2011, I was in seminary and I'd finished my first year At Wesley Seminary in DC and uh, everything had gone pretty well and was making new friends and building new community and uh, got to the summer of that year and inside just felt like everything was kind of coming apart at the seams and I wasn't sure why and uh, it was a really scary time and uh, found myself spiraling sort of downwards and downwards and uh, eventually a few friends Started noticing what was going on, and uh, with their help, I, I managed to get myself to the hospital and check myself into to the psychiatric unit of the hospital, and was there for a few weeks, and got out of the hospital, and then went back into the hospital, and then was there for a week and got out, and then gave it another shot for a third time, and eventually it became pretty clear that this sort of short term uh, stints on the psych unit weren't doing the trick, and I ended up in a, a longer-term care facility uh, in Connecticut uh, at Silver Hill Hospital, which is where Carrie Fisher did rehab. So that's my claim to fame, mm. uh, <laughs> though not when I was there. So I didn't like meet her, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but uh, I was there for a few months and then came. That, that, that's where I was uh, diagnosed with bipolar disorder and um, put on some medications that seemed to be helpful and developed uh, some, some skills and, and participated in some therapy techniques that, that seemed to give me some stability in the midst of what was a really intense emotional storm. Uh, and then I came back to Washington, D.C., and I had medication and I had some new therapies and I was stable. But things were just really, really hard for a really long time. And it was during that time period that I started learning how to talk about my experience and how to tell that story and realizing that when I was able to do that, to... to share um, with some authenticity and vulnerability about what had been and still was a really difficult, painful experience, that there were actually quite a lot of people who had stories or were close to people who had stories of similar difficult times and and hadn't been sure whether they were allowed to share it. And so this um, ability of story sharing to be permission giving uh, for people and to create spaces, particularly within faith communities, where there might have been a message, explicitly or just implicitly, that we we don't talk about that here. Um, the ability to create some space in those communities for some difficult but but much needed conversations, and so the first book, mm-hmm. Christ on the Psych kind of emerged out of that time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you you talked just right there about kind of this new process of, okay, now I'm going to start sharing my story to help open some of those doors, right? That we've we've talked about here on the show before in terms of how helpful that is kind of giving people the gift of going second. I think that's a, I ripped off a John Acuff quote right there. <laughs> but you, uh, you write in the beginning of this book about during that time, having this realization of, hey, my story isn't the story, right? It's like one of, this story and the way that this happens and maybe even it's one of relative privilege. Can you talk some about about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, during that same time, uh I tell the story in the book, you know, I was I was sitting in the psychologist's office and she was introducing me to this new uh form of group therapy that I was going to be engaged in and she's speaking to me and explaining what's going to happen in this therapy session and then she says you know, it's it's good to have you in this group. Uh, we don't usually have men in these groups. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Why do you suppose that is? And she said, well, I know why that is. That's because most men with your diagnosis are in jail. Um, and I was caught off guard by that. but But it was an introduction for me into a reality that for so many people in this country, mass incarceration and chronic homelessness and the sort of revolving door between those two has replaced a functioning mental health system, right? For for, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people in this country, Um, to the point that jails and prisons are actually the largest mental health providers in this country, which is not a good idea, right? Because jail is not good Mm. for your mental health, really. And so, you know, there's a, a deep brokenness to our mental health system. And if you only have my story, then you don't have the full conversation that needs to be happening when we're talking about mental health care in this country, right? You have my story, which is like I was able to get to a hospital and there was a hospital there that had psychiatric beds. And then I got treatment and medication and that was relatively helpful. And I was able to come back out into my community eventually finish my master's degree, right? That's that's one story of mental health. But for so many people, the story is um, they end up in, in, in an incarceration situation or end up homeless, or there is no hospital in their town or the next town over or six towns over. And the one that is six towns over doesn't have any psychiatric beds, right? So, you know, I as I traveled around Starting to tell this story and creating spaces in faith communities for other people to tell their stories, it more and more showed me the importance of making sure that we're paying attention to all of the different types of stories and then trying to do something about that, right? Trying Mm. to take seriously the fact that so many of the stories about mental health in this country are stories about a lack of access to care or the inequitable provision of care or the way that other systems like race, like rural-urban divides, um, impact the ability to experience a caring environment.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so good. The social worker in me is just like, yes, go! No! I love it. I love it. So good. So good. It's just so good. Well, so in in a lot of ways, it kind of seems like this last book, like the last book that you had written, really is the story that kind of leads up to and includes, you know, much of your treatment. And that this new book, in many ways, kind of picks up and starts where you basically get the bill for that treatment. Right. Um, and so – we're, I, I want to ask a little bit about like why and first of all why write a book about this but then also I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about like what does mental health care have to do with theology and vice versa
0: Sure yeah, I think uh, to use sort of an old school evangelical word, right? I, I felt really convicted um, as I started uh, sharing, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. share, sharing this story that in a way seemed to have a really happy ending. It was like, uh, you know, I went through this mental health struggle, but now here I am talking to you, you know, clothed and in my right mind. Um, and that seemed to be, uh, for one thing, maybe uh, a bit of a misrepresentation of the fact that mental illness is a chronic thing and it come can, you know, in my case, I can have good days and bad days and good months and bad months. Right. But that also that sort of ignored a lot of the realities that I experienced coming out of the hospital where the mental health system was like one of my biggest mental health challenges. Right. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you mentioned getting the bill, right. I, this was before the affordable care act the provisions became law which meant that insurance companies were legally allowed to deny coverage for anything based on a pre-existing condition, and that led to me being in a massive amount of medical debt. my uh, My mm-hmm. payment monthly payment on the debt was bigger than my rent in Washington D.C. Which, like, if you've God. ever tried to rent something in Washington D.C., uh, mm-hmm. is really saying something. Um, and so that that struggle just sort of wasn't represented in Um, in the story that I was telling. So expanding that story to, to talk a bit about these systems that impact care. And then when I started doing that, I started noticing how so much of our supposedly secular language about these systems that impact care was very theological in its nature. And I admit that this is perhaps the result of doing a master's in divinity that you end up with this hammer and everything looks like a nail. But, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it just seemed like the language of pre-existing and pre-existence, for example, is very theological language. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is the first use, um, published use of the term pre-existing to refer to healthcare coverage. Uh, It was is in about the the 40s. It's like 1947 in the Reno, Nevada newspaper. But the earliest use of the term "pre-existing" in print in English is in the 1500s as part of a theological tract. So the idea that God is pre-existing or that Christ is pre-existing is this deeply theological concept. So it was fascinating to me to like notice that this language of pre-existence now is language that we assume is talking about the healthcare system. Um, hmm. I think like similarly language of insurance, I talk about in the book the tension between the concept of insurance, which is a concept about being secure through risk management, versus this Christian theological concept of assurance, like the assurance of salvation, right? where assurance is this sort of deep-seated sense of, yes, even me, yes, I am loved, yes, I belong, and I am included in this story. And insurance is kind of heading off the risk, and I would argue that uh, in in the United States, especially, we tend to mix these concept up uh, concepts up a lot. Uh, in fact, I've driven by a church that had a, tr- a sign out front, you know, like funny church signs that said, uh, "Come inside for your fire insurance." Right oh like gosh. you know <laughs> right? oh, so, that, <laughs> um, so that salvation is kind of a get out of hell free card um that you need to you need to buy into it because that's how you manage your risk of eternal salvation or damnation, right um, which I don't think is a very helpful or healthy way of thinking about this really important concept to me, this concept of salvation mm. right? so I mean, j- just a few examples, but I started to notice, over and over again the spirituality that would come up when i was starting to engage around these issues so being someone who cares a lot about faith communities being someone who is in ministry myself trying to draw some of these threads together in order to maybe if we could have a healthier if we if we have a kind of unhealthy theology and an unhealthy system then maybe being able to turn a lens onto this theology look at the embedded beliefs in the system and say, are there healthier ways of thinking and talking about this will lead us to some healthier systems.
1: Hmm. No, I Mm. think that's so good. Uh, Getting at kind of the deeper, like, can we look at the systems as a whole, right? As opposed to like, well, just talk about it, get some help, right? Like recognizing, hey, there's a lot of people that can't necessarily – it's not just that easy and that there are these big systems. And I love – because sometimes I think we can look at things like that and say, well, that's public policy. That's not really the place of oh. you know theological debates or whatever, right? But what you're saying and the argument you make really well in this book is like, hey, those things don't – they can't be separated quite so easily, right? I mean, you write at one point like where there are systems, there are powers and principalities to be named and challenged, and later on you write talking about systems does not only mean analyzing concrete examples of injustice or dissecting policy systems are also spiritual mm-hmm. right so this idea that like mm. our spirituality and our our theological ideas are woven in just because people created them right are woven into the systems that that we create i think is really important
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah So in part two, speaking of systems, you talk, you touch on systemic problems, like toxic masculinity and racism and a culture of violence and all sorts of things, right? And you use this kind of dichotomy of talking about sick systems versus just sick people, right? Why is it important to talk about sick systems, as you put it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think for one thing systems impact the health of individuals, um, in ways, both subtle and obvious. Right. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, Holly, I'll just, I'll tell you my, uh, my pastoral care professor in seminary was a social worker before he was a, uh, pastoral mm-hmm. care professor. So, you know, mm-hmm. you know
2: <laughs>
0: you'll like this, but,
2: um, I no, no I, <laughs> I mean, I'm already loving a ton of this. And, yeah. It's so good.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, this idea that somebody can walk in, even even into a one-on-one therapy session, let's say as an example, without bringing all of the things going on in their systems with them mm-hmm. is, is just like not true, right? It's not, possible.
2: It's yeah. not possible. Yeah. Right? right.
0: Because and systems, we can mean we can we can mean. You know, race and class and these big things, but also like what's going on in your family, what's right. going on in your friend group, right? That's that's the stuff of our lives. Your We're work doing,
2: and yep, yeah, mm-hmm,
0: yep, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, we we have to talk about this stuff because I, I don't. There's no other way of doing it, I guess. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think like in particular when it comes to talking about mental health in this country, we tend to have this really individualized and pathological view of it, right? That like mental illness is what's wrong with a person. And that opens up itself up to all sorts of different problems that manifest themselves in a lot of different ways. And so to to have some analysis of that and be, be able to talk about the systems is really important. And what I talk about in the book is how this Shows its importance to me a lot of times in conversations around violence, particularly gun violence, where we we need to be having a really courageous and really difficult conversation in this country when it comes mm. to gun violence. And instead, when a shooting happens, what we hear is, well, they must have been mentally ill, right?
1: Mm, Which
0: both yeah. keeps us from having the conversation we need to be having and scapegoats people with mental illness and stereotypes them as as violent when in fact people with mental illnesses are much more likely to be victims rather than mm-hmm. perpetrators of violence mm-hmm. in this country yeah so you yeah. see like in that one issue or in that one conversation all the different ways that You know, me as someone with a chronic mental health issue, I'm like being scapegoated in this conversation in order to avoid having the really difficult, courageous conversation we have to be having for all of our health and safety, right? For for the, for the safety of the whole society. So that's like, that's one, I think, particularly powerful and poignant example of this. But that same principle, I think, operates when we're looking at a, a host of other conversations as well. Yeah. Yeah. hmm
2: Yeah. I think that, that nudge for us to get into some of those messy conversations, as hard as they may be, but as important as it they are, so that we aren't engaging in that scapegoating or misunderstanding or, you know, it's just so important. So that's good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well- after the systems bit, then you start talking about, right, section three is all about care and kind of how we respond to those systems, right? And you bring up this idea that, you know, it, we're not kind of just the, I mean, you even there's a chunk about thoughts and prayers, right? But yeah. as like a this a phrase, but you know, that it's not just our, our goal to like, well, we just pass all this off to God and say like, well, I don't know, that's not my deal, right? Mm. But that we get to be a part of addressing those systems. Can you talk some about why that's such an important part of caring for people?
0: Yeah, yeah, the the section on thoughts of prayers came out of this, this is like visceral reaction I have. Uh, Whenever there's this weird like meta conversation that now happens on social media, where Mm -hmm. something happens, (laughs) like something tragic happens. Mm -hmm. And before like I can even process this tragic news that has happened people are arguing on twitter about thoughts and prayers and like whether it's an appropriate response or not to this tragic thing that happens and it's one of those weird moments where you realize like because social media is so ubiquitous that like social media is guiding where my thoughts are going Even though, like, I don't actually want to be arguing about thoughts and prayers right now. Like, this is not—you know—this is not Mm -hmm. what I want to be doing after I've heard this horrific news. Whatever that horrific news is, right? Yeah. So I, yeah, I just wanted to to say something about that. About like, what you know, I'm I'm a Christian and I'm a chaplain, right? And so. Like, I'm not ready to say, like, people shouldn't pray after tragedy. You know, that's, that's like against the grain of everything that I am. Um, and then on the other hand, I like, I totally understand this like frustration with this like brush off or this kind of rote response to yeah. tragedy, particularly from lawmakers who could actually be legislating, right? And, and rather than, mm-hmm. um, they, they actually have the capacity or the power and the responsibility that we've invested in them by electing them to be responding to a public crisis. So yeah, I thought, okay, like what, how, what, what are thoughts and prayers? So, you know, I write about, about prayer and this section in Paul's letter to the church in Rome where he talks about the, the cry of, um, creation and, uh, our, our own cries and the cry of the spirit and how prayer is this stepping into this place where, where like the groanings of the world and our own groanings and the groanings of the spirit come together and lead us then into that groaning, right? Lead us then into the pain of the world in solidarity and, and Mm. um, perhaps in action. And, and so, yeah, like we should pray and yeah, we should think, right. We should, we should use our brains um, when it comes to, these systems that impact us, but but let's let's understand those as proactive responses that are then reflective of what we encounter when we take action and vice versa, um, rather than as a kind of a quick brush off or a like kind of pablum, right? That we we just toss at a at a painful situation.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it actually reminds me, some of what you're saying is reminding me a bit of, we had an episode with Dr. Jesse Fox um, a little bit earlier this year. I think it was at the beginning of the spring. Um, Mm -hmm. And he talks about spiritual bypassing. um, Mm -hmm. Like when we're we're not comfortable with that pain and we don't want to sit in it. And in so many ways, we just, we bypass it because we, you know, rather than than becoming aware of or being able to sit with that pain, letting it change us, and being able to kind of act out of that, you know, that thinking, you know, that thinking and praying and um, action, just how they all work together. You know, he he did a great job kind of explaining some of that. So I just want to like take a little nod back to that episode. And I think we have a couple others that um, we'll want to loop back to just, you know, that just are in alignment with so much of what you're saying. So I really, really appreciate that.
1: So you write in the care section, right, about how looking at some of these systemic problems can be like pretty overwhelming, right? I mean, I know that that I've thought that before when I look at you know people that want to come to counseling and they can't afford it and I, I can't do anything really right like so what would you say to uh, someone who's listening who's kind of looking at the scope of something systemic like our mental health care system or any of these systemic problems and says like this is too big like what what can i possibly do mm-hmm. right like the sense mm-hmm. of it being overwhelming yeah. right like what i mean i don't know what would you say to listeners or uh, co-hosts who sometimes feel that way yeah
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the, I think, gifts of bringing a systems perspective into some of these conversations is that when when you practice thinking in systems, which isn't natural for us to do, at least in the US, I think, systems impact individuals, but individuals and individual health also impacts the health of systems, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So to say that when somebody comes in to talk they bring the whole system in with them all the you know systems that impact in with them doesn't mean that we have to then fix every single one of those systems in order to be able to do anything together you know me and you the two of us right that would be impossible right i mean it was just um but rather that like my health and my ability to kind of sit with discomfort my ability to learn how to share my own story actually does have an impact on this broader system. You know, I think we live in really Mm -hmm. anxious times right now. And so one of the most important things I need to learn how to do is to care for and better manage my own anxiety. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise I bring all that anxiety with me into the larger sort of advocacy work that I'm doing. So just to say that we're thinking in systems doesn't mean we can't act in small ways, think in like, you know, in small ways. Actually, it encourages us encourages us to say exactly, okay, what's the thing that I can do? Or what's the thing that I feel like I'm called to? I know I can't change everything all at once, mm-hmm. but I can choose to share a story that maybe I would have been too afraid to share before, or I can choose to, you know, write one letter or make one phone call or reach out to one person that I've been worried about, right? Or, you know, maybe the thing I need to do that is to step back from some things, right? I've stretched myself far too thin with this sort of, belief that I can just power through and force everything to go the way I think it needs to go. Mm -hmm. Maybe the practice I need is to step back. Maybe somebody else has felt really disempowered and like they didn't have a voice and the practice they need is to step up and speak out and, and let their voice be heard. Right. So that we're, we're all operating together in these wider systems. We each have our own then place where we can step into that system in a way that moves the whole thing towards uh, more health, more wholeness, more abundant living.
2: Oh my gosh, this is so good. I, I'm just like, Oh my gosh. I'm like, yes. This is, yes, I so agree because I mean we yeah. talk with I mean we talk with social work students about this all the time in the sense that like they have to do kind of their part and their piece because if they try to do everything they're gonna they're not gonna be able to get anything done yeah. but if they can take their piece and steward what you know they feel like is theirs to do while caring for themselves through the process because any pain or struggle or whatever any you know any of their own junk that they're not transforming kind of as richard Rohr talks about when it's not transformed it's transmitted and that comes out in this line of work too so that i i just i just wholeheartedly am amening through all of this so (laughs) so good i love it
0: yeah thanks
2: yeah Well, in thinking about like some of these steps that we can take and really just kind of what what you so eloquently like just walked us through, you also list a few things within the book where you talk about these three tensions for offering care and you you have these five communal practices and um, these three advocacy tips. Do you mind kind of walking through or talking through each of these in whichever order you feel most comfortable with?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I talk a bit about, you know, for faith communities who are learning how to be places where people can share difficult stories and can start doing this work, right? Being these story sharing spaces that then create bigger conversations around mental health care that then lead to advocacy in the truest sense, right? A giving voice to these stories and these conversations in a broader sense. Um, So I talk about how faith communities need to get really good at tensions because this work is a lot about living in the tension. And I I use this example of a rubber band, you know, that, but exactly its ability to pull against itself in sort of an opposite way is what lets it do the work it does. Right. So that, um, Mm -hmm. when we're talking about tensions, we're talking about these poles that pull each other, but that's what gets them to do that work. So, um, I talk about being comfortable in the tension of like ministry for and ministry, from or like ministry to and ministry with would be another way of saying it um that like there's been times in my life as somebody with a mental illness where i just need help right i've just needed somebody to get me to the hospital or maybe to Mm -hmm. bring me a meal right and in those moments i really did need the church to be like to do ministry for me right (laughs) right so to reach out to me to help me But other times I really need the church to understand that I have good news to share with the church. And not just because I happen to have a master's of divinity, but that people with mental health struggles um, have something to share, have a story to share, have a witness to give. So we're not always the objects of the church's ministry. We're also the subjects of the gospel. And so to, to kind of be able to hold the tension of those two things is really important. I talk in a similar way about a tension between destigmatizing medication and professional care and allowing space for people to be honest about their experiences of medication and professional care, mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. of which are not great, right? Um, some people have really negative experiences with professional yeah. care, unfortunately. Some people have experiences where professional, what should have been professional care was actually being used to control them. Uh, we saw just recently news stories about psychotropic medication being given to children at the border who had been separated from their families, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't yeah. care, right? That was yeah. what should have been care actually being okay. used as a means of control. Um, so we have to give voice for, to that those negative experiences at the same time as we do the work of destigmatizing and saying, medication can be great, right? <laughs> like, it can be yeah. really good. Yeah. And then I talk about experiences of the presence of God and the absence of God, right? That it's, it's okay for both to acknowledge that like in the name of my first book, Christ is on the psych ward, right? Christ is there with people who are suffering and also, it's okay for people to say, "Like, where's God? Like, why isn't God showing up? Why isn't God helping me?" Um, in fact, we have wonderful biblical examples um, in the Psalms and in many other places of um, you know this being part of our holy scriptures that we have inherited. Is that it's really okay for people to pray, like, God, where are you? Would be really nice if you showed up right around now, right? So um, that that we can we can hold these different tensions, I think, and do it well. Lets us create the spaces where we can then engage in these in these different practices and start to do the work of advocacy. Um, so yeah. I think that kind of lays the groundwork for for some of the work we need to do,
1: yeah. and I, before we get into some of the communal practices, I do want to reaffirm or like echo these tensions, right? because the, that's some of where I think a lot of like the theological aspect comes in, right? Like if you're not ever allowed to say, hey, this really sucks, right? If somebody says, well, but you have to be thankful and only Mm -hmm. focus on joy, right? Mm -hmm. Like that gets into like a, well, that's unhelpful. In fact, it's harmful. And theologically, I don't know that that holds up, right? So like the the way that we are theologically thinking through these things is very important for then how we interact with each other in times of pain, Mm -hmm. particularly obviously in this conversation around like mental health, but just in pain in general. So yeah, I think all three of those are, are really great.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I
1: agree. So coming off of those three tensions, right, you also talk about these five suggestions you have for practices as communities, right? Can you talk some about those?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the, the first of those is just to recognize that mental health and mental illness are uh, related concepts, but not the same concept. And so um, you might not be a mental health professional who has clinical experience and your church might not be, you know, well equipped to handle the the kind of clinical side of things but your church is already doing a number of amazing things that are good for people's mental health because when we talk about mental health we talk about things that include purpose and a sense of belonging in community and a sense of being part of something that's bigger and deeper and wider than myself and a sense of vocation right and these are all things like that that churches do whether or not they name them as such Um, healthy churches. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. a lot of times when we talk about mental health, people automatically jump to like the DSM for pastors, basically. And like a big part of me wanting to write these books has been to tell pastors and faith communities like, look, that's just part of it. Like, it's good. That's good. You should read that book. Right. Like you should take some time to educate yourself about different diagnoses and the symptoms but but actually, like people with mental illnesses, no less than anyone else, are searching for community and belonging and a sense of purpose and a sense of vocation, and that's that's spiritual work, right? So that's the first practice um, to to do that that practice of developing those that communal work that that lends itself to that healthy spirituality. Um, the second is just presence and showing up and the importance of presence. So I always tell people. When people came and visited me in the hospital, I don't always remember. In fact, I often don't remember what people said to me, but I remember they were there. Um, Yeah. And so that's just Mm. to to affirm that that's really important. Yeah. Um, The third thing is to pay attention to images and metaphors around healing and recovery. There are a lot of stories about miraculous healings in the Bible, and those are great stories, and we should dig into them and read them and interpret them. Understand that for a lot of people with mental illness and chronic illness in general, right, there isn't necessarily a miraculous healing experience, but there's still a lot in the scriptures and in our stories of uh, as faith communities that speak into people's lives when they're struggling and when they're um, having a difficult time. So to pay attention to the way we use language around healing.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I also talk about all, these are also, yeah.
0: I'm, I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'll just let them get through. I, I know. You know their all, yeah. I know. I, know. <laughs> I,
2: know.
0: Um, I talk about uh, affirmation not being the same as confirmation, which is sort of a, a helpful concept that I, I kind of picked up in mental health first aid. Um, but a lot of times when like I was in the hospital, I would say, like, I feel totally alone. Right. And mm-hmm. someone would say, but like, your friends are coming to visit you which is understandable, right? There was a desire to like convince me that I wasn't alone. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But of course, like my brain's not working so hot. Right. And so mm. like my brain is convincing me I am alone, even though objectively I'm not. So it was really helpful when people were able to, able to say, well, David, that just sounds really tough and painful, uh, you know, to, to affirm, me and what i'm going through without like confirming it like that you can affirm how i'm feeling without somehow telling me that i'm right that i'm alone right and i think sometimes people don't realize that they can do that They, they can affirm someone's experience without confirming it uh yeah in mental health first aid you learn to do that even with folks who are if you're you're not you know you're not the professional you're not the therapist or the psychiatrist even when people are having like psychosis right they are literally seeing something that isn't there. It, it's, it's counterproductive mm-hmm. to try to argue with them about this, right? right? Yeah. So what, what they need to hear is they're safe, right? That's like, and so it's, it's kind of a similar concept to that. Hmm. And then the, the last thing, and I think it kind of circles back around because this is related to mental illness and mental health and understanding what your proper role is, which is to think of referrals as expansions of the circle of care and that's a phrase that my CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education supervisor, uh, um, Reverend Ellen Swinford, gave to me, and I—it's a gift I that keeps on giving. And basically, like seminaries and higher education institutions have done this too in a slightly different way. For about the past twenty years, seminaries have tried really hard to convince pastors or pastors in training that we are not mental health professionals, right? That we are not licensed therapists and that we shouldn't pretend to be, which is really important. Mm -hmm. It's good that we have driven that point home. The unintended consequence often, I think, is we've created a whole generation of pastoral caregivers who are scared to talk about mental health Mm -hmm. because what they've been told is you're not the professional on that so refer it away, right? Mm. So the problem with that, of course, is like you coming to someone and saying, hey, I really need help. And then saying, I'm not the right person. Go over there. Um, isn't isn't a very good pastoral care practice, right? Um,
2: well, or and, if they even say, go over, like even if they do the referral or not, you know? Right. Um, right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, and a lot we,
2: of times... Yeah. Go ahead.
0: Sorry. Oh,
2: go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, I do know because, especially for pastors, like our faith leaders are the first lines of defense when someone is struggling with mental health symptoms. The first yeah. folks that they go to are faith leaders, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, so yeah, I, I I I appreciate that you're bringing up this tension of like the you know the these unintended consequences of not knowing exactly how to process this responsibility that a lot of faith leaders have.
0: Yeah, it often puts um, mental health struggles in this like special, unique category that I'm not always sure they deserve to be in. So like the, the example of this is the sort of the rule, the basic rule that you learn is if somebody comes to you three times about the same issue, then you refer them which it's a, it's a helpful little guideline, except like we would never talk about physical illness like that. Like if somebody came into my office and they were like, I have a stabbing pain in my stomach and I'm dizzy. Mm. I wouldn't be like, well, we can talk about it for an hour and then come back next week. We'll talk again. But if, if you still have a stabbing pain in your stomach on week three, we need to go to the doctor, right? Like, we would just go to the doctor right then, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like We would start Mm -hmm. with the doctor, but then Mm -hmm. I'm still that person's chaplain when they go to the doctor, right? I might go with them. I might do a follow-up visit after they're home. You know, the church might, you know, bring a casserole over if that person is homebound, right? You know, if we we think about the metaphor of, of a physical illness, then a lot of the ways we talk about a mental illness start to sound sort of weird, right, and silly, as opposed to the idea of being someone's pastor while they're going through the professional treatment that they need for an illness. And so what my CPE supervisor said was, no, no, referrals aren't that. Referrals are expanding the circle of care. So you're drawing a wider circle around this person. And I love that image because I'm still in the circle, right? I'm part of the circle of care,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: there's other people that I'm including, so I don't have to do it all, and you know the person might move around the circle, so right now, I might not be the closest person uh the, the you know the closest point on on the circle to the person who's being cared for, and then at another time, I might be right. So just to like, think of this image, I think is a helpful way of thinking through some of these tensions around referrals and not referrals and what is the church's business, even being involved with mental health and and things like that.
1: Yeah. No, that's, mm-hmm. so, good. that's so good. And I know where like, get you know, I want to respect time and all that so i I will say that there's also three advocacy tips right stories are important make the links to systems clear from the beginning and honor the humanity of those involved in the work yeah and with those three as well as the rest of them right i would recommend listeners hey if you like want to dig deeper Mm -hmm. into any of those including obviously the ones we talked about because we only have so much time here to go grab this book pick up a copy and make sure that you read through those because there's some some great
0: stuff in there
2: i agree yeah Yep,
0: It's also about the right thickness if you have like a wobbly table. So it's dual use. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's awesome. (laughs) In case you don't have a napkin nearby, you can get David's book. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, (laughs) It has more value than that, David. Um, (laughs) Well, something that we we do love to ask – our guests, especially, you know, when they spend all this time writing these books or doing this research or whatever it is that, the, that, they're the gift that they're offering, that we're trying to learn a little bit more about. We always love to hear a little bit about their hope for this work. So could you tell us a little bit about like, what, what is your hope for this book?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm uh, well, I'll say two things real quick. I, I hope that this starts really crucial conversations in faith communities, about how they can be spaces for story sharing, which turns into conversations, which turns into the work of advocacy, right? So giving voice then to those conversations in our society um, and in the the sphere of work that that can really impact these systems. So that's that's a a big thing, and I'll share maybe like a, a smaller thing that I think was a, con- as a concrete example of that. When, when I was writing this book, you know, we were talking earlier about things can feel overwhelming and what can I do. I was writing uh, the chapter about debt and about some of the biblical passages about debt. And I, I just started feeling like I've got to do something because I have been able to get out of medical debt with a whole lot of help from a lot of people. Um, and not, not everybody has that whole lot of people uh, to yeah. help them. And so one of the things I discovered when I was researching for the book was this organization called RIP Medical Debt, which um, buys, they, they do the same thing debt collectors do, which is they buy debt very cheaply from hospitals. The hospitals just want to get rid of it, so they sell it cheaply. But then instead of collecting the debt, they abolish the debt. And because they're able to buy debt very cheaply, if you give a donation to RIP Medical Debt, your donation goes a long way. Like $1 Yay. can forgive a hundred dollars of debt. So all of the presale profits from the book and some of the proceeds from my book launch that we did this past week were donated to RIP medical debt. And we have, uh, because of that, we've been able to help forgive, uh, more than $45,000 worth of medical debt. Oh, um, so, wow! so, um, I would love for, as this book starts conversations in faith communities, I would love it if um, some uh, some folks who are reading the book would, would jump on that, that effort with me and uh, and help yep. uh, forgive some medical debt um, for people in this country.
2: Mm, that's so good. Yeah.
1: Like That's that. awesome. We'll definitely put a link in the show notes mm-hmm. to more information about that because I know, you know, I saw you promoting that and thought this is awesome and had to go check it out. So I know some listeners will also, you know, want to go learn more about that. So mm-hmm. um, definitely make sure we provide that. David, thank you so much for mm-hmm. joining us. Listeners, if you want to connect with David, you can connect with him at com or on Facebook or Twitter. We'll have links in the show notes you can buy this book grace is a pre-existing condition faith systems and mental health care wherever you buy your books if you want to connect with holly you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on twitter at hollyoxhandler you can connect with me at robert-4.com or on any social media at robert vor. david like i said thank you so much for joining us today spending yeah. some time talking about this do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners today
0: uh well just thank you for having me like i said i'm like long time listener first time caller you know so (laughs) Ah. (laughs) (laughs) so this Mm. has been fun and uh yeah i just um hope hope this was uh helpful for some people and yeah feel free to check out the website for more resources and uh, to learn more thanks for listening to the cxmh podcast